Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A special episode for you today. All the episodes are special at the moment. We'll go back to normal when politics does. We bring you three interviews recorded at the Times CEO Summit, sponsored by KPMG. Sir Nick Clegg, formerly Lib Dem Deputy Prime Minister, sat down with Hugo Rifkin to discuss his new job working for Facebook. Rachel Sylvester, the Times columnist, went toe-to-toe with Michael Gove, former Times columnist and now contender to be Prime Minister. But first, I sat down with John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, to discuss everything from Brexit to anti-Semitism, his plans for renationalisation. But I began by asking him if he'd ever taken drugs. <laughs> I'm a working-class kid. I could never afford Class A drugs. <laughs> I wouldn't want to. Excellent. Uh, but we'll leave that there. I, I think probably everybody in this room wants to know what sort of Chancellor would you be? Is there someone, previous Chancellor you've got in mind, or are you going to be a completely different Chancellor if you, if you get into the Treasury? There's no one I've got in mind, but let's, let's put it this way. Uh, I keep explaining to people that when we go into government, when you did the survey on the um, biggest threat to the economy, I thought I was going to come out top, <laughs> as I do in some polls. And I've been trying to say to people... Time and time again, the nature of my chancellorship will be one in which we determine the policies in advance, that we're open and transparent in the discussions about those policies, that we establish structures that will enable us to implement them together, and that as a result of that, we'll overcome these issues of confidence. That there clearly are, let's be honest, there is a confidence issue with regard to a a future Labour government. Why why do you think that is after so many years? Well, we're radical. We want to change the way our economy works, actually in line with some of the discussions that you've had in previous years as well. It's about investment. It's it's about what Mariana Mazzucato will be talking about later, was real value. It's about tackling climate change. But it is about addressing the, let's be honest, the grotesque inequalities that there are in our society. Now, that is quite a radical agenda. We've put forward lots of policy ideas. But the issue for us is how do we secure people's confidence? Well, the only way we can secure it is by being completely open, transparent. And I do this thing about there's no tricks up my sleeve. What you see is what you'll get when we go into government. Some of this you will like, some of it you will dislike, but that's the nature of politics. But also what I'm trying to do is consult with people and talk to people about the nature of the structures that we have. So when we go into government, I use this phrase, we all go into government, because actually I don't think government should be just left to politicians. What is it that you think people in this room won't like about what it is you're going to do? Well, some of them are concerned about some of the taxation policies and our public ownership policies. Straightforwardly, I've said, look, we've got to tackle the inequalities in our society. It does need a, a fair taxation system. And so we've laid out those proposals. And it will mean, you know, I'm being straight with people, it will mean the top 5% paying more income tax. It will mean rolling back some of the corporation tax cuts. But that money will go into funding our public services. I haven't met anyone. I've been meeting asset managers. Some of you will know the, I think it was the Times who first said it was my tea offensive, where I, I don't accept free meals, so I offer people a cup of tea. Austerity is over. We give them biscuits now and, and allow that to happen. <laughs> But I've been touring around saying to people, look, this is what we're doing. I've not met an asset manager, a banker, a chief executive who wants to come out of their office and step over a homeless person or who doesn't feel there shouldn't be more security with more police on our streets. So I'm saying these are our taxation policies. It will go into our public services and it will go into long-term stable investment for the future. When you go around and you mentioned your T-offensive, which are the companies with the structures or the way that they do business that you, that you like I don't never say that because as soon as I mention someone, 
Um, it's almost laying them out for, for a real savage attack by a certain number of newspapers. What, what sort of hardly the time. What sort of companies then? Well, uh, all right. I will, what, 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 what for you is a good company? Co- what's a companies, bad company? Companies that have long-term plans for their company and long-term plans for their engagement in the economy overall that have, yes, recognised their social responsibilities and also at the same time engage with both their consumers, their passengers, whatever, and the workers themselves who create the wealth. And there'll be the shining examples of what that's happened, and I won't go into them because I'll embarrass people. And as I say, often when I mention a name, it sets them up for a scrutiny that they've not invited because they're not politicians. But there's a whole range of examples of that going on. And what I'm trying to do is build upon the best. You've been consulting on plans for both uh, renationalisation and employee ownership and workers on boards. Are those plans changing and in what way are they changing okay. as a result of those consultations? Yeah, we've basically, what I've said to people is here's some of the objectives that we want to achieve. Here's our outline of the programme we put in our last manifesto. We're now preparing the next manifesto. We're doing a, a preparation for government exercise as well. Saying to people, if you agree with the objectives and you've got different routes that you think we should pursue, or if you've got ways in which you want to advise us on the implementation of those policies, come and see us and we'll listen. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, uh, the new governor of the Bank of England is, well, they're advertising, the process is live. If you've got someone, if it was up to you, who would you have? No, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't identify a name at this stage. I have a good working relationship with Mark Carney. Let's be clear, our policy is to maintain the independence of the Bank of England. But when I go around and speak to chief executives and others and economists and uh, others and in the city in particular, we want to look to see whether or not we review the mandate of the Bank of England. Maybe move it nearer towards the Fed, but that's one of the discussions. We had a report done done for us by Graham Turner in the city, which was looking at whether or not the mandate should include some element of commitment to productivity targets. I'm not sure if that's the, the mandate for the Bank of England that we want, but we've opened up that discussion, and it's been, I think it's been a fascinating discussion. Alongside that, though, and this is the issue that was mentioned earlier, and it's been an issue that's come up with these events in the past, how do we secure the scale of investment that we need? Uh, at the moment, we're putting forward a £500 billion programme over 10 years. I don't think that's sufficient. That's state-funded. I don't think that's sufficient to meet the challenges we need. Therefore, how do we, how do we attract the investment from the private sector and from the finance sector that we need? And that's why I'm sitting down talking to pension funds, looking at models that have worked elsewhere to enable that to happen. That means maybe establishing new structures for that. One of the ideas that came up from Graham Turner's report was having a strategic investment board where you bring the Bank of England, the Treasury base with the private sector and with others together to look at how we can develop a longer term infrastructure, for example, infrastructure uh, investment program. I meet with uh, John Armit for the Infrastructure Commission. We have a regular session. He outlines what our needs uh, and as far as I can see at the moment, I don't think we've got the resources to match those needs and we need a serious discussion about and that. So how much more money is that? You've talked about £500 billion, but how, how much more do you think you need? We're looking at that at the moment. As soon as I mention a figure, what will happen, the toys will triple it. Um, <laughs> but the key issue is, as I go round, it's, it's the point that was made earlier. Our priorities are what? One, the reality is there's an existential threat, which is climate change. So how do we tackle climate change in a way that gives us economic advantages uh, for the long-term future? That's the first thing. The second thing, the fourth industrial revolution, automation, AI. And just as much as I'm talking to employers, I'm talking to trade unions and experts and academics and universities, that's where our R&D money needs to go itself. But also, 
the reality too is that we've got to tackle inequality, the, particularly the regional inequality, which is grotesque within our country and, and motivates, actually motivates political decisions like Brexit, which actually if we don't tackle that inequality, we'll be in a situation which I think we'll regret in the future. You mentioned about the, how the Tories will spawn. Obviously, we've got the Tory leadership contest happening at the moment. Lots of candidates saying they're going to end austerity. And then yesterday, Boris Johnson making a big announcement on income tax. What have you made of the sort of various economic pitches of the leadership candidates? I'm enjoying the Tory leadership election. It's quite, at least someone is. It's, it's quite nice to spectate on a leadership election. I'm quite used to them in the Labour <laughs> Party at the moment <laughs> on a regular basis. Um, well, it didn't take much from me to take apart Boris's proposals. Most of the other Tory leadership candidates actually did that as well. And I, I just say this, and it echoes what some of the other Tory leadership candidates have said. Uh, out there are four and a half million children living in poverty. We've just had a UN report, special rapporteur, that doesn't talk about poverty anymore, it talks about destitution. And when you then start talking about giving tax giveaways to some of the highest earners, you can see how people will react against that. Now, I've supported the uh, threshold changes in the, in the budget that Philip Hammond brought forward because I thought those earners in, in that middle range, 50 to 80,000, needed a bit more of a boost. But on this scale, it was £10 billion being spent. When, as I say, just give me a, I'll just give you one statistic. Uh, a report three months ago, because of our collapse of social care, 87 people die a day before they receive the social care they need. And this is the fifth largest economy in the world. That, no wonder people are quite angry out there. So I just think we need to have a proper discussion about what our priorities are. And I, I, just, I just think Boris got it completely wrong. I think it demonstrated just how out of touch she was. And it, wasn't, it didn't need me to say it. Actually, virtually every other Tory candidate said it as well. He's the front runner at the moment. Yeah. Who was the Tory candidate who is most likely to stop Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister? Uh, none of them. <laughs> you don't fear any of them? No. Because people talk about how Boris Johnson is, you know, the sort of British Trump who could take on a populist like Jeremy Corbyn, but you don't, you don't think... Bring it on. You've got to get, I mentioned you've got to get off to go to uh, the Shadow Cabinet. You were at the PLP meeting last night of Labour MPs. How it, was it as lively as the report suggests this morning? Sweetness and light, just as ever. <laughs> So there were one or two things that were brought up by uh, Labour MPs last night. Yeah. One in particular being the EU and the party's ongoing turmoil, it seems, over its position on um, it's, the second referendum. It's, look, it's, it's not turmoil. We've had to, we've had to come to Johnny, terms. Is, I mean, it is, to be fair, well, it, it is turmoil. Okay, I mean, you've well, got loyal Labour MPs standing at the PLP challenging the leader to his face that he's going to lose support if he doesn't shift position. I know, I know you might not appreciate this, but I... That's the sort of democracy I want. I'm, I'm, a, great, um, I'm a great admirer of, of what I thought was a quite a, a heroic political figure that's never been properly acknowledged, and that's Harold Wilson. Because he had a cabinet where he allowed debate, and there was rumbustious argument. But as a result of that, I think, came out with better decisions. And I'd rather have people get up and say, this is what I feel passionately, than them just to sneak away in the corners and plot. And I... And I Whatever people think about those sort of meetings, I'd rather have that. And where we are on, on Brexit, you know, we, we, took, you know, we campaigned for Remain. 
Uh, Jeremy was criticised for not campaigning hard enough. That's rubbish. He, he threw his heart into it. We campaigned for a moment. We lost. We had to respect the referendum. We then come out of that. We go into the 2017 general election. We said we'd respect that referendum on manifesto. We then went to our party conference and we said, look, we'll, step by step, We'll do everything we can to stop a no-deal no Brexit because it's so damaging to our economy. We'll try and secure a deal. I was in six weeks of negotiations with the Tories and I thought we could get a deal. They were falling out in front of us. And then I got to the stage in the fifth week, I realised that what, even if we could march our people to the top of the hill, they would not be there and we would disillusion everybody. So we, we, those talks ended. So we've got to a situation now where we don't think we can get anything through par Parliament. We've tried our deal, there isn't majority support for it. So the situation now is it's most probably going to have to go back to a public vote. We won a general election. If we can't get that, most probably a public vote in another referendum. And that's not where we want to be, but that's where the nature of the politics in Parliament at the moment has forced us to. Can you understand why people find it confusing that on the one hand your policy is to deliver Brexit and on the other hand it's to have a second referendum to campaign for yeah, but Remain? That's the, that's the nature of the compromise that... But you we either want to, to deliver Brexit or you don't. No, no, no. Let's, let's be clear. If people, if you've argued a case and you've lost democratically, you've got to try and respect that democratic decision. But also you've got to be honest with people and say, I can't deliver it. So therefore, what do you do? If we can't deliver it in Parliament, you have to go back to the people at some stage. I'd like a general election because I want to get rid of this Tory government as well. But if we can't get that, the reality is that we have to go back to the people in some form of public. And I, we should be honest about that. The big thing for me, though, is maintain, and I maintain dialogue cross-party with Conservatives as well, because the big thing for me is to stop a no-deal Brexit, because I think it'll be so damaging to our economy. And I... I don't but, want to be in a situation so many where of your my, MPs my and supporters want to stop Brexit full stop. That's the, that's the problem, isn't it? And you've seen you, your policy is, has helped revive the Lib Dems who who were. Well, it might well look. It is the toughest road. We've tried to get. I described it as a traditional British compromise, and it is trust. It's easy easy to go to both extremes. Easy. The hardest bit is to try and bring people together. Tragically, we've failed to do that because we couldn't get agreement on what we think was a a reasonable compromise around a, a Brexit that would work. Now, with, in Parliament, all we can do now is make sure we stop a no-deal Brexit and then, if necessary, go back to the country. Yeah, I'll take a couple of questions. One last question on that. Do you, are you embarrassed that the Labour Party seemed to move more quickly to remove Alistair Campbell for voting Lib Dem than it seems to for people accused of anti-Semitism? I was annoyed, um, but the, the, here's the irony. The process that removed Alistair Campbell was brought in by New Labour under Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair. So I, what I've said is you should review that procedure. It doesn't work. It means a completely different process completely. And, and, how, and on and the anti-Semitism side, I've always argued we need a swifter, more ruthless process for dealing but with been any But you've been saying that for ages and it and doesn't seem to no, But it is beginning to improve. I've seen the numbers that are going through and it has begun to begin to improve. Jenny Formey, our new General Secretary, has brought in a QC, she's brought in a legal team so we don't lose any cases either, which we haven't, and it's just driving that through now. But yeah, you just always have to be on top of it, and I, as I say, swifter and more ruthless. It's, how, how do you feel about the fact that the Labour Party is being investigated by the Equality and Human Rights Commission? I welcome it now, let's get this sorted. It's, it's, it's yeah, shameful, well, it isn't, the Labour well, Party? Look, 
Look at all political parties at the moment. Look at what's happening in Islam. No, I'm talking about your no, political no, party. No, but look at what's happening in Islamophobia. We've got to recognise there is racism in our society. And I tell you what we haven't recognised up until now, the levels of anti-Semitism. There isn't just, you can accuse the Labour Party, but there is in our society overall, and it's been there for centuries, and we thought we'd overcome it, and we haven't. Why has it come back in the Labour Party? Well, I think it's because it's a reflection of what's happening in wider society. We've, got, we've had 0.01% of cases in our, in our party. That is, I think, a tragedy. But look at what's happening in wider society. We're having Jewish cemeteries daubed with Nazi swastikas. We're having Jewish children have to be protected when they go to school. That is unacceptable. So we will root it out within our party, and that will enable us to contribute to rooting it out within our society. I do not want to live in a society where that occurs. Full stop. OK, I'm being told we've massively run out of time. John needs to go back to sort out Labour's Brexit policy at the Shadow <laughs> Cabinet. Uh, John, John McDonough, thank you very much. Yeah. If you looked at British politics and thought, this is not normal, join me, Matt Chorley, on my tour as I try to explain what the hell is going on. For tickets, go to mytimesplus.co.uk. This is not normal. All of you being here is not normal. I couldn't believe it when my good friend Diane Adams told me we'd sold 50,000 tickets. <laughs> so what I'm going to try and do is to try and explain why politics has gone so weird. Now, this is going to take about four or five hours. Um, it's the run-up to the 2007 local government elections, and I was going to interview David Cameron. So I asked him lots of really tough questions, like why do people vote Conservative? Why do you love Cornwall so much? What's your favourite farm animal? If only I'd asked a follow-up question. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Sylvester and Michael Gove. As, as we all know, he's a Marxist. But what fascinates me is you used to have a picture of Lenin on your wall. And in fact, David Cameron used to say you were a Maoist because you were in favour of creative destruction. So are you really as much of a revolutionary as John McDonnell? Um, if so, why on earth are you a Conservative? No, I'm not a revolutionary. One of the reasons I had a picture of Lenin on my wall was that he was the person who first coined the phrase education, education, education. I also had the posters of various other people on my wall when I was at the Department for Education, um, including Martin Luther King, Barack Obama, Malcolm and, X, and Malcolm another X. revolutionary. And one of the reasons for that is um, I thought that education was as much a civil rights challenge as anything else. And the, the distribution of opportunity in our country is profoundly unequal, um, that we had one of the most stratified education systems in the world. So one of the things that I sought to do when I was education secretary, as well as raising standards overall, was to close the gap between rich and poor. And quite a lot of the effort that we made with free schools, with the extension of the academies program, um, and with curriculum change, was to try to help the most disadvantaged children to do better. And alongside David Laws, who was a very gifted junior minister from the Liberal Democrats, we introduced something called the Pupil Premium, which meant that we targeted money more effectively on the very poorest children. And as a result, we succeeded in narrowing the gap between rich and poor, even as the gap between rich and poor widened in places like Scotland. And it's a source of, what's the word, irony to me, that I grew up in the Scottish education system, which was superior to the English, and which is more egalitarian because of the principle of the democratic intellect. And now we have a situation where Scotland is a more stratified society educationally and falling behind in international league tables while England is forging ahead. Now, David Laws said you're a combination of Jeeves and Che Guevara. So one of your latest revolutions, or your latest revolution, is Brexit, which uh, you look at the sort of no-deal mm. proposals that are coming through. Ivan Rogers is saying that's under, you know, counted in. Um, did you ever realise it was going to be this complicated and this difficult and this bad when you were campaigning to leave? 
Um, I always recognize that leaving the European Union would be complicated. The, the principle that a country should operate outside the structures of the European Union and succeed is, uh, is not in itself a novel or a revolutionary ideal. So whether it's uh, Norway or Switzerland or Canada or Australia, they don't have to submit themselves to the transnational rule of a body like the European Union in order to flourish. But of course, the process of leaving something that you've been a member of for 40 years is not something that you can accomplish overnight. And indeed, when I was leading the Leave campaign, I made the point that this was not something that should be rushed. I said that you should not press the Article 50 button immediately. Jeremy Corbyn said as soon as the vote came through that you should proceed with Article 50. I was on the back benches when the decision was taken to trigger Article 50. Um, and uh, as we now know, while uh, a great deal of good work had been put in, a proper plan for every eventuality had not been thought, thought through. Um, one of the reasons why I so uh, energetically supported the Prime Minister's withdrawal agreement, even though I think it has its flaws, is because I believed it provided an orderly way out. Um, I don't support no deal. I don't think that's the, the desired outcome. But there is a risk, as I think Ivan Rogers said earlier, that it might happen. It might be the case on October the 31st, uh, despite our best efforts, that the EU say, sorry, you're going to have to leave. Now, I've put forward a plan which I think um, will command the support of people in the House of Commons and which I know uh, people in the EU think is a potential way forward. So I think that we can uh, ensure that we do leave in a timely and orderly way. And how, how much of a delay are you willing to see? Could we still be in the EU four years after the referendum? Uh, no. I, I think that okay. uh, one of the interesting things about the, the race is that uh, one or two of the contenders have said that we must leave by October the 31st, come what may. And my argument is, well, if you're 85 or 95% of the way there and it just takes a little bit of extra time, would you really walk away? I don't think there's any CEO in this building who, if they were 95% towards securing a deal, would then say, oh, look, midnight's passed. Tell you what, we're walking away. My entire team, uh, every lawyer, every accountant, every member of my negotiating team is just going to say, because we haven't concluded at midnight, that's it. Uh, your shareholders would think, sorry, what was all that for? Um, and I think that that would be a big mistake. I think if you are close to securing a deal, as everyone here will know, then you take the extra hours, days, or weeks in order to conclude it. Um, otherwise, all your efforts have been set at naught. But the civil service analysis of a no-deal Brexit is absolutely hair-raising. You yes. know, recession, 10% rise in food prices, <coughs> security risk, union at threat. Do you think Mark Sedwell is wrong, or are the hard Brexiteers wrong? And, and it, or is there a sort of roadblock to reform in Whitehall, like you talked about the blob at education? No, no, I, I, I don't think that at all. I think, I think the civil service have a responsibility, which they discharge very well, of outlining a range of scenarios. And by definition, you have to have um, a reasonable worst-case scenario against which to plan. If, um, a, a, if civil servants were continually giving us the sunniest and most optimistic uh, readings of events, they wouldn't be doing their job. So I think it is right. But of course, there are a range of options which could occur in the event of no deal and a range of actions which one can take to mitigate it. But I hope I've been clear in saying that I think that no deal is not a desirable outcome. It would create um, economic uh, uh, difficulties for this country. We could get through it, but uh, it would be um, much, much better not to have to go through with no deal. And if you had to choose no deal or second referendum, which would it be? I would choose no deal in those circumstances because yeah. I think that fundamentally the, the, uh, the health of our democracy depends on respecting that result. And I think the British people um, uh, feel a sense of exasperation. Um, in Scots, they're scunnered at how long it's taken. But Even if that led to a general election? Well, I think one of the dangers here is that um, if the Conservative Party, this is a Conservative Party but also a national uh, choice, if the Conservative Party were to 
go into a general election before Brexit had been delivered, then Jeremy Corbyn would win. And that's one of the other reasons why I worry about uh, the way in which some have interpreted the October the 31st deadline. Because if people knew that we were making progress, and yet at the same time the Prime Minister were to say, well, I'm going to junk that and um, uh, try and go for no deal, at the moment, Parliament would say, hold on a moment, you can't do that. And there'd be a vote of confidence, and general election would follow. And there is no uh, way that a Conservative Party leader could win a general election without Brexit having been delivered. So do you think MPs are going to change their mind if things go on longer and start backing well, no deal? I, I think that um, uh, it would be possible in certain circumstances for minds to change, depending on the uh, position of the European Union. I certainly don't think that it can or should be ruled out. But I think that, um, uh, as I say, if it is the case that someone says inflexibly, the only thing that will determine whether it's deal or no deal is this particular timeline, then MPs will say, well, you were making progress and you seem to have thrown that away. We, um, and I, I, I would back whoever was Prime Minister in whatever decision they took. But I think MPs would pitch us into a precipitate general election. And as I say, there is, there is no polling evidence that any Conservative leader would win without delivering Brexit. And, uh, and again, what, you know, whatever people think about Brexit, whether they're enthusiastic, cautious, or, or whatever, um, it will do damage to our democracy if we don't deliver on that result. And all the evidence suggests both in the general election and in the recent European election, that while some people have changed their minds, but broadly, um, a clear majority of the country still wants us very firmly to leave. Would you ever do a deal with Nigel Farage? Uh, no, I don't think that would be a good idea. Why not? Um, well, I'm, I'm uh, a conservative, and um, uh, uh, Nigel is leading a different party. You know, he's achieved a great deal in, in politics, but um, uh, his approach would be different to mine. The thing I find a bit hard is that you're a liberal conservative, I think. You've always been quite pro-immigration, pro-multiculturalism. But the campaign you led, the referendum, was incredibly anti-immigration. Do you now regret that? Do you feel... I, sp I interviewed a chief constable mm. recently who said she felt that the hate crimes and the mood of politics was partly to do with the campaign that you led. Do you regret that? Do you feel ashamed of that campaign now? No, I would disagree with that. Um, one of the things that's striking is that since the referendum result, attitudes towards migration in Britain have changed. But hate crimes have risen. No, I, I would contest that too. Um, uh, attitudes towards migration have changed. We are now the country in Europe with the most positive attitude towards migration. Um, I remember talking to Ruth Davidson just before we were both speaking at the Scottish Conservative Party conference. And Ruth said to me, well, I'm a Remainer down to my boots. But the one thing that I do have to grant, Michael, is that your argument was right. That if people feel that they have control over migration, then their attitude towards it becomes more relaxed and liberal. So are you proud of that campaign? Um, I think that there were... Uh, you could always run any campaign better. I could certainly have run aspects of past leadership campaigns better, probably, <laughs> as well. Uh, the, 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 the argument that we made was that um, our migration policy should be based not on an arbitrary target of tens of thousands, but on what was right for our economy, um, and that simply because someone happened to be a citizen of Bulgaria rather than Bangladesh, that shouldn't mean that they should automatically have an advantage. We should determine it on the basis of the skills we need, and also the generosity that we want to show to people fleeing persecution. And do you think the Tories could, uh, it would be a good idea to have another Etonian leader? Do you worry that you're still seen as the party of the rich? Well, I don't think people worry so much about someone's background, and I don't think it matters where someone went to school. What do they do in, in, uh, in office? So I, I think you can come from whatever background, but if your priorities seem to be skewed towards the already fortunate in society, that's a mistake. Um, Are you, you know, thinking of Boris's tax proposals? Well, 
I'm not thinking of any one particular candidate, but I do think that those tax proposals, <laughs> I do think those tax proposals are mistaken. Um, I think that um, the, 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 there are two tests that I would apply to any tax cut. Does it, does it power economic growth, and does it help the most disadvantaged in our society? So I think that there are different ways in which you can change the tax burden on business, particularly small businesses, in order to boost economic growth, and you can see a multiplier effect there. Um, but other taxes should relieve the burden on the very poorest in our society. And um, one of the bigger problems that we have, essentially, in this country is a productivity problem. And we know, and I think Phil Collins was mentioning it earlier, um, that there are, there are regional disparities in productivity. Um, and it's a simplification, but not an oversimplification, to say that the most productive areas of our country are uh, um, uh, cities with great universities in the south and east of uh, the country. Uh, the areas that are less productive tend to be beyond that. If we want to make our society more productive overall, we need to think about those areas. We need, to, in particular, to think about an education and skills as well as infrastructure policy for those areas. Um, and if we're thinking about the levers that government can do, can take to make the country more productive, a tax cut which concentrates on helping the wealthiest pensioners most of all is not, a tax cut, is not a tax cut mm. which either improves productivity or um, generates a greater level of social equity. So you said in 2016 that you thought Boris Johnson was basically incapable of being Prime Minister. Have you changed your mind? Well, yes. Um, I think that um, oh, we have nine, uh, ten, if, if you include myself, good candidates, and I think that uh, all of them need to be scrutinised on the basis of the policies that they're putting forward, not anything that happened in the past. This is the 2019 leadership election. But do you think he has the attention to detail, the grip, the focus, the discipline, well, and we'll, the judgement? We'll find out during this race. Right. Um, all the candidates will be subjected to scrutiny. And uh, as I say, you know, Boris um, uh, was a, a great mayor of London. It was um, enjoyable working with him as foreign secretary. Uh, he now has the opportunity to set out his stall and to be judged, as all the candidates will be, on the basis of their ideas and policies. And how much is character a factor, do you think, in politics and leadership, whether in business or in politics? Do you think character matters as much as policy? Um, I think that uh, it's... it's I, I know where you're going with this question. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think that there are... There are essentially, um, as... Um, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin pointed out in her book about Abraham Lincoln, the best administrations have different types of uh, characters in them. Uh, Theresa is a different character from David Cameron, um, but they've both um, uh, been uh, dedicated, selfless, and uh, good prime ministers. Um, so uh, it, it all depends. That We all have um, uh, strengths in one area and weaknesses in another. You just need to look at the mix overall. And how much do you think the drugs thing is a factor? Do you, have you been surprised by the backlash? Um, I mean, John McDonnell this morning said he couldn't afford to take, working class boy couldn't afford to take class A drugs. But actually, you didn't have a very privileged background no, either. No. Um, and I just wondered why you had taken drugs. Well, one of the things that I, I wrote about in the uh, uh, Times article at the time was that just because someone has made a mistake, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, if they've fallen from high standards, that doesn't mean that you should then lower the standards. All of us will have principles by which we will seek to live our life, and all of us will occasionally fall short of them. But that doesn't mean that uh, the principle was wrong. It just meant that uh, you succumbed, as we all do from time to time, to human frailty. Um, and so some have said, well, you, you know, you, if you've done this, then you should be advocating this liberalization or this deregulation or whatever. There's a, a good argument out there um, about uh, the different ways in which we should approach this issue. But I think it should be separated from what any one individual has done. The argument should be made on the basis of 
the quality of the idea. And one of the other things that I, I would say is that um, a knowledge of human frailty um, uh, went with me into office, but was when I was, as you know, when I was Justice Secretary, one of the things I was very, very anxious to do was never to judge any uh, prisoner on um, uh, or define them by uh, their worst moment. I was always anxious to see how we could help them lead better lives in the future. So why do you think you succumb to human frailty in that situation? I, th I think um, we are all um, uh, sinners in a fallen world. Was it a sense that you wanted to be part of a gilded elite that you hadn't grown up in, do you think? No, I don't think so, no. Mm. No, I felt, um, I, to be fair, I actually feel very uh, privileged over my background. Because as you know, I was adopted and um, I was given the most um, uh, precious gift that any child can have, which mm. is the unconditional love of their parents. I just wonder whether voters care about what politicians do in their private lives. Do you think they care as much or less than MPs and party members? Or do you think it's irrelevant in the end? I don't know. I and mean, I think you know, everything comes together. Okay. So um, I think that people will make a judgment in the round. As I say, um, you know, the, 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 if you look at um, past prime ministers um, and past politicians, um, you know, at the, as they say at the end of um, Some Like It Hot, um, when uh, the millionaire proposes to um, uh, one of the characters who, of course, is a man dressed as a woman, and, and the character reveals that she's a, uh, a man. And the millionaire says, well, nobody's perfect. Um, uh, the, the, you know, one of the things that I would say is that um, you know, people will make a judgment overall. And ultimately, we're choosing a political leader. Um, and my argument is that I've shown in office as a politician in three different government departments that I can deliver. Um, and I'm uh, showing now a range of ideas and an analysis of what we need to do to make Britain better, which I hope people will think is right. And uh, people will then make their own judgment. Do you think there are issues about Boris Johnson's private life, different issues? No. Uh, I think that um, uh, Boris and all the other candidates should be judged solely on the ideas they put forward and their willingness to enter into this debate. And do you think he's now an election winner? Because that's the sort of myth in the Tory party that he's the most electorally sensible choice. But actually, I just have this sense he's gone from being the Heineken candidate to the Marmite candidate, and that Remainers would find it very hard to vote for him now. What do you think about that? Um, well, funnily enough, it, it, um, on a personal level, I like Marmite more than Heineken. But <laughs> um, uh, again, you know, a, a judgment will be made. And I think the most important thing is you, you can make a judgment about uh, someone's electability, and you can say X or Y appears to be doing better. But we know that actually, uh, if someone is prime minister, um, the British people look afresh at anyone who becomes prime minister. So Gordon Brown, many people would have said, oh, he's you know, do or technocrat. He becomes prime minister. People think, actually, do you know what? He's rather capable. Then, of course, with the botched election, uh, that moment goes. In the same way, Theresa, people would have said, I'm not sure Theresa has you know, the glamour terrible word, of some other candidates, but Theresa was a very effective prime minister, big lead, and then things went wrong in the general election. The British people are fair-minded. They give any prime minister a chance to prove themselves. And ultimately, if a prime minister in office uh, displays the grip, the competence, the vision, and has the right policies, then he or she will be elected and re-elected. But do you think Boris Johnson is the most likely to win an election? Well, I, um, I've just been watching, I watched last night, um, the latest in the series about a former prime minister. Um, and she was a former education secretary. Um, people said that she was a divisive figure um, and that uh, she was too interested in ideas and didn't have the touchy-feely requirements that you need to win in politics. Um, and it appears that Margaret Thatcher wasn't phased by that and that she won general elections in uh, 79, 83, and 87. So I think what is sometimes deemed electability 
is a more complex quality than people often allow. So do you model yourself more on Margaret Thatcher now than Martin Luther King? I, I have enormous respect for uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, but the person actually, funnily enough, my political hero is Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. And he, he had a sort of war on the robber barons, if you like. Do yes. you worry that, do you agree with then Boris Johnson about four-letter words on business and that capitalism has sort of gone wrong? No, I, um, I, I wasn't there when that remark was allegedly uh, said, so um, uh, I can't imagine that anyone would say that because, um, as I said in the Sunday Telegraph, uh, uh, sorry, for apologies that it was the Telegraph, um, uh, business is a force for good. All the things that, nearly all the things that make our lives better from the drugs that alleviate pain to the entertainment that brings families together is generated by business. My father was a small businessman. Enterprise is what drives our country and the world forward. So I'm emphatically pro-business and enterprise, but I do think that we do need to look at some uh, aspects of capitalism because Teddy Roosevelt and for that matter, uh, FDR um, in the 1930s recognized that you sometimes need to reform capitalism in order to save it. And I think that there are some things that we need to do, for example, to look at lobbying, to look at corporate governance, um, and in particular to look at competition policy in order to make sure that Britain continues to be as it has been in the past, not, not just the home of great established companies who generate such wealth and opportunity, but also the home of uh, the, uh, the new disruptors who are going to provide wealth and opportunity in the future. Just finally, are you, are you going to stay in this race? People are saying, you know, it's, you, you may have been damaged. Are you going to stay in? And if so, why? And I, I feel that you're, you're very keen to prove that from your background you can succeed and sort of prove to your parents that you can do it. Is that why? Is that what's motivating you? What? No, no. I'm, 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 I owe an enormous amount to my parents, and um, I all, would always want them to feel that the chance they took on me in adopting me was... Um, uh, uh, the right decision. But no, the reason I'm in it is that um, I've seen what being Prime Minister takes. I know that it is a, um, a daunting challenge, but I've worked with two different Prime Ministers in three different serious roles. I believe that I have the, uh, the experience to be able to deliver. Um, and I also believe that having argued strongly for Brexit, but having worked in government with people who were passionately in favour of Remain, I can bring people together. So I think that I'm ready to deliver, ready to unite, ready to lead. And you're not going to give up? No. Thank That's you. It. I'm delighted to introduce to you Hugo Rifkin. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Senate Clegg the uh, Vice President Global, of Global Affairs and Communications at Facebook. Uh, I checked his Facebook page just before coming on. We have two mutual friends, and he hasn't posted since April. <laughs> um, Nick, in 2017, you wrote in the I newspaper, as an old-fashioned liberal who believes in the virtues of competition, I remain perplexed at the way that US competition law only seems to care about the effect of a near-monopoly market dominance by a tiny number of big players if and when it increases the prices paid by consumers. This year, after going to work for Facebook, you wrote in the New York Times that big in itself isn't bad and success should not be penalised. What happened to change your mind? No, well, nothing. If you, listen to, if you read that out again, what I was saying was there's a, for those who know the differences in doctrine between the US and the EU on competition policy, in the US the doctrine is entirely rests on proven harm to consumers, where in the European Union you have a wider sort of suite of um, measures by which you apply antitrust competition policy. So I was just observing that as a European who's always been steeped in that, I've always, I've always felt that there's a kind of you know, wider canvas through which you can look at competition. So I, I don't think that 
that hasn't altered at all. I would still make that observation. It's just a sort of description of the very different cultures of antitrust competition law on either side of the Atlantic. I don't actually so happen to think, and that hasn't changed my, I haven't changed my mind in that either. I don't actually think, big though Facebook is, I don't actually think you can make the case that in any of the products that it provides, whether it's video sharing, photo sharing, messaging, that it is a monopoly, or even in the in the in the ad market. I mean, the the in sort of the total ad market. I think Facebook now has about eight percent of the total market. Google has other competitors have about twice of the digital ad market. So, so no, I don't. I haven't changed my mind. I was making an observation about different doctrines, and I don't think I've ever wavered in my view that I, I don't personally think, others might of course do differ, that you could claim that this company that I now work for is a monopoly in the traditional understanding of the word. I mean, you have, it's becoming a bit of a refrain on the campaign trail in the US, Democrats particularly, yeah. are talking about Facebook as a monopoly, Facebook must be broken up, you've got Kamala Harris, you've got Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. These are people who traditionally come from what would roughly be considered your place on the political spectrum. Do you... Um, do you find it challenging that you have these views coming from there? Do you understand why they think this? Yeah, no, I totally understand why. Sorry, sorry let me be very clear. I totally understand why, because I think it's right, that people say something must be done. I just happen to think that the something must be done is the more complicated, painstaking, and forensic work of regulating the internet more sen and regulating, indeed, the work of, of and activities of companies like Facebook. I think that break them up is, a, is, is an understandable reflex but it's kind of trying to, it's trying to wish away the difficult dilemmas between free speech and control, between data portability, by just saying, can't we just get rid of this problem by chopping them up? I don't actually think chopping up, this, in this instance, Facebook, uh, if, you know, if you spin off WhatsApp, which is what I hear some people say, that doesn't change any of the dilemmas that I've talked about, about privacy, data use, online rules on, on, on elections, data portability. So I, I understand the instinct. I don't think the remedy, and by the way, it's, it's very American this, I think it's partly mm -hmm. because there's such gridlock in DC that across the aisle between the Republicans and the Democrats, because there is such an absence of agreement about what they should do together on regulation, yep. you end up defaulting to a more sort of, a more, um, a more almost a more sort of radical solution. Sure, well, we'll come to regulation in, in, in just a sec, but as a sort of, as a ground rule, do you think that Facebook should be responsible for content on Facebook in the same way that the Times is responsible for content yeah, published in the Times. It's a ludicrous assertion. So, so who should be responsible for, the, for that So, so it's a ludicrous assertion because it, it's such a fundamental misunderstanding of what social media is. Mark Zuckerberg does not, thankfully, sit in Menlo Park in the Bay Area commissioning this reporter to do that or this reporter to do that. It is millions, billions of, of private individuals choosing to express themselves and communicate with other people, friends, family and others, to support causes, join groups, of their own volition, when they want and how they want. And so, so if I can just yeah. stress, I think this analogy between the old publishing media and the, and the new social media displays, often on the part of the old media, a fundamental misunderstanding of the emancipating effect of social media. The whole point of social media is that, is that no one's telling you what you can do. Okay. Now, what we do have a responsibility for is then setting... God, well, no, because you, you asked the question, yeah. so let me try and provide an answer. So I don't think, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is like um, um, your editor, um, in many respects, actually. Um, but I, but I, I equally, equally, of course, it's not the case to say that Facebook does not have a responsibility to ensure that certainly illegal stuff, but hateful stuff, divisive stuff, poisonous stuff, does not appear because there are hateful, poisonous 
vile people who will, of course, want to use those platforms. And that's a constant... And for that, I think, of course, Facebook can and should and must be held responsible. But you're saying it has a responsibility, but it's not responsible. I mean, it's... So you, let me try... Let me which try one make of those... So, well, let, which let, one of those, those are we going to come to? Not as complicated as it sounds. <laughs> so I don't think Facebook is responsible for commissioning the content that appears on its platform, because that is done by people through their own free choice. So that's quite different to the mm -hmm. old traditional publication where everything, all content is commissioned by editors. But we do have a responsibility, particularly and most clearly in terms of the law, but beyond that, in terms of the standards that Facebook sets itself, to either downgrade or remove content which either transgresses the law or can lead to real-world harm or transgresses the standards that Facebook has as, as the sort of terms of its service. Sure. So I think, so I think in a sense, and that's been reflected recently in the government's own white paper in the Care and yeah. Cost Review, I don't think anyone is, you have to come up with a new analogy rather than resort to old ones to understand the responsibilities of social media companies. If we're talking about harms and we're talking about regulation, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg has said recently he wants a global framework for regulation. Um, do you think that's practical? And why should it be global? Well, it should, be, it, should, well, it should be global for one very simple reason, is that I think that we are heading towards, already, the balkanization of the internet. If you look, we've got a Chinese internet, increasingly got a Russian internet trying to emulate the Chinese in internet. If you look at some of the developments in countries as diverse as Turkey, uh, India, Vietnam, where there are, there's greater pressure on companies to locate their data uh, sort of physically, if I can put it like that, in each, in each jurisdiction, we're already drifting towards the risk of the balkanization of the internet. I think most people would accept one of the great, great virtues of the internet is that it's not balkanized and it's not segmented according to different uh, geographical or sort of jurisdictional territories. So, so the more you can have rules which prevail across jurisdictions, particularly when the main tech rivalry at the moment in effect, is between American tech and Chinese tech. But, you'd, so that, but so you think you're going to have rules that both of those can agree to? No, no, I don't think you are going to get... I do think what you can aspire to, which I accept is a, is a modification of the understanding of the word global, <laughs> is, is one where the non-Chinese internet yep. works as much as possible according to common rules. I think we have a huge incentive to do that. And by the way, there are good examples of it. And this is where the European Union, alas, from which we are departing, um, plays such an important role as a rule setter. Um, Europe doesn't have the tech giants like China and America. It does have the giant capacity to set the rules. And if you look at the most developed form of privacy legislation around GDPR, mm -hmm. that's an EU invention, an American company like Facebook has extrapolated GDPR to all of our operations around the world. If I, may, I mean, some would say that part of the reason why Facebook in particular, but companies like Facebook, Facebook are becoming much more keen on regulation by government or governments, is that so you don't have to make these decisions yourself? Is that fair? Uh, yeah, of course, because I don't think it's right. I don't think anyone would think it's right that... But this is not... Look, it's only 15 years old, Facebook. Mm -hmm. Facebook was invented after Federer won his first Grand Slam. I mean, you know, <laughs> Facebook has been, hasn't been around for as long as Federer has been dominating men's tennis. It's an incredibly young industry. And so it is normal that we're grappling as a society to work out what the guardrails are. But, there are, but, there, are, but there, are, there are huge costs while you grapple in terms of... In, I mean, I, I was going to ask earlier, but how, how responsible you would consider Facebook to be for the rise of fake news and populism around the world, the spread of anti-vax conspiracies, all that kind of stuff. 
I know Facebook is doing a great deal to, to try and but my own, my combat own view, these my, moment, my own view for what it's worth, having looked at the research on this, is that, of course, so, social media has something which is qualitatively new, which is, that it is scale and speed. Um, what is not new is people coming up with bonkers ideas or fake ideas or indulging in extremist or populist points of view. That wasn't invented 15 years ago. Populism, extremism, conflict and division in society, particularly in the wake of the, when you have, as we have had since 2008, profound economic and social so shocks to society. I, I think people sometimes um, confuse symptom with cause. I, th I think so you see a lot of the divisions in society played out on social media that is very precious little evidence to suggest. I mean, if you look, for instance, at... Um, some of the claims and counterclaims made about the effect of social media on the US presidential elections in 2016. Uh, Harvard academics have recently looked at it, the Columbia School of Journalism have looked at it, and actually what they discover is that the thing that created the bubble effect that people keep ascribing to social media was this feedback loop between um, the tweets of the then candidate Donald Trump and the mainstream media, the cable, so, cable so, TV. So you're saying it's coincidence. It's coincidence that we've had this rise of populism at the same time as we've had this explosion of popular politics. But populism wasn't invented 15 years ago. Populism is as old as the hills. But, but the, you must but, appreciate it's, it's, it, it's somewhat had a heyday lately. But I don't think if you... Well, hang on, I, I, I'd be very careful not to be ahistorical. Eruptions of populism and extremism in politics has been around for, you know, for, for centuries, and it almost always coincides with profound economic and social tensions within society. And I, I'd be very careful to imagine that somehow the populism that we see, whether it's in Brexit or in, in parts of Europe or North America, can only be sort of reduced to the fact there are new ways that people can communicate. Uh, otherwise, what would you say about the populism of the 20s or the 30s? Or the you know in the 19th century, I mean, it, uh, populism and mass movements of anger against the status quo. I, I personally think there's just no evidence to suggest that was invented by social media, none at all. Okay. Well, b b before we finish, as we're talking about populism and indeed Brexit, uh, you had a, a ringside seat for all that. Uh, what happens next? I'm afraid I think the the, the um, chances of a um, of a no deal outcome have accelerated because the Conservative Party have as they, alas, always do, um, have put their own sort of survival ahead of the survival of the Union of the United Kingdom. And they have decided that delivering Brexit, however economically masochistic doing so, is the absolute priority for their own political survival. And so as long as that dynamic prevails and as long as Corbyn sort of is basically just absented himself from the wider debate, I do think the I do think the likelihood of this whole thing becoming hijacked by a very, very introverted, almost narcissistic debate within the Conservative Party has clearly um, uh, dramatically accelerated, uh, dramatically increased, which both um, dismays me and, and saddens me. Does part of you wish you were still leading the Lib Dems? No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, and look, who I'm, would you like to be, if not? No, no, no. <laughs> who would I like to lead the Lib Dems? Yeah. Well, I think I so happen to be both friends and great, great fans of... Joe Swinson and Ed Davey, I think they both do a brilliant job and they've got government experience, they're good campaigners and so on. Um, and I'm not going to blight either of their chances <laughs> by expressing a preference. But, but um, obviously the sort of Lazarus-like recovery of the Lib Dems is just a sign of quite how much the, this Brexit question is creating yep. sort of convulsions in British politics. Um, but as long as the Conservatives are in charge and are only acting with regard to their own party survival rather than what's right for the country, um, and as long as 
no one's able to, in a sense, dislodge them from, from that course. I, I, I think things have just got materially worse. Well, Sinek, I wish I'd had Sorry, you. Sorry, cheerful I end, wish I wish I'd had you for longer. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, Sinek Clegg.